going to begin this morning with a, with a quick exercise. I have a coin here. Um, and if I were to flip this coin, what might we expect the results to be? Well, one of the options is it could turn up. That's right, it could be heads. And the other option is it could turn up. It's a 50-50 chance. The, the likelihood of it being heads versus the, the likelihood of this coin coming up tails are equally likely. And so I'm going to do that. I'm going to flip this coin here in just a moment. And if you believe that the coin is going to come up heads, I would like you to raise your hand. Go ahead and raise your hand and and keep your hand up in the air and look around. I think we've got about half of the room, which makes sense, right? About half of us should be should be voting for heads. Keep your hands up. Now I want you to close your eyes, keeping your hands up. I'm going to flip the coin. Heads. Keep those hands up. Excuse me. Keep the hands. Let's put the hands down, but keep the eyes closed. So we have a heads. I'm going to flip it again, keeping your eyes closed. I want you to raise your hand if you believe it will be heads again. Okay. Okay. Heads again. Let's keep the eyes closed. Put your hands down. I'm going to flip it one more time. If you believe it's going to be heads, I'd like you to raise your hand. I'd like you to open your eyes. We're down to about, I think, less than 20% of the room at this point. You can put your hands down. The likelihood of this coin turning up heads or tails has never changed. With every flip, of the coin, regardless of previous outcomes, there is a 50-50 chance whether it will be heads or tails. And yet, there is something about previous outcomes that governs our expectations of the future. What is that going on inside us? It's a phenomenon that is well known. In psychology, it's referred to as expectation bias. And there are a number of things that can lead to that. And in in this case, it's a tendency to believe that because something hasn't happened yet, a tales, we falsely believe that its likelihood of happening increases. However, as I said, each time that the coins flip, the chances of any particular outcome, heads or tails, are always 50-50, right? The, the coin has no memory. The coin has no idea of what the previous outcomes have been. It doesn't care. But we care. 
You see, our past experiences and, and outcomes in life, they shape our expectations for the future, whether or not they're based in any reality or not. And not only do our experience in, in life or past outcomes shape our expectations for the future, but our expectations shape our future experience. That is, we, we, what we expect out of a particular event shapes the way that we experience it. Our friends in 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous have a saying that expectations are simply premeditated resentments. <laughs> have you ever done something nice for someone? You, you went out of your way to do something that you, you knew that they were going to appreciate and they don't notice? Through no fault of their own, they suddenly find themselves the beneficiary of your anger and resentment. And it's simply because their reaction is not met with your expectation. Or, or perhaps you've, you've had a friend tell you, you can't miss this restaurant or this upcoming movie. It's the best I've ever eaten. It's the best I've ever seen. You show up. There's, there's no chance for this place to live up to the expectations you now have for it. It falls flat. I want you to bear that in mind, the, the power of expectations. As we prepare to read our scripture for this morning, I want to invite you to open up to the gospel of Matthew in chapter 14, and we'll begin at verse 13 in just a moment. But the passage opens up with the phrase, when Jesus heard this. And if we go back and, and look at the previous passage, what Jesus has just heard is, is that his friend, his cousin, John, some of us know as John the Baptist, his, his cousin, John, has just died. He's just received the news. Not only that, that John has died, but that John has been murdered. John's been beheaded by the ruler of the area, Herod. And it says that when Jesus heard this, he gets into a boat to go off to be alone. And we can only guess that Jesus needed some time away, perhaps to grieve, to begin to process what this death means for him. But Jesus' expectations for that situation, they're immediately challenged. I want you to pay attention to how Jesus responds, and I want to invite you to consider how you might have responded. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. 
Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. And Jesus said to them, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they replied, we have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And Jesus said, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds and all ate and were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 baskets full. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides the women and children. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus goes off to be by himself, and the crowd follows. I can tell you, I'm I'm not so sure that I would have been as gracious as Jesus. I don't know about you, but I don't do well in adjusting my expectations a lot of the time, particularly in times of challenge. Our worship team across the street at the 9.30 service will tell you that I have a certain lack of flexibility on Sunday mornings before worship when it comes to the the plan that we've set out together. I, I like to plan and I like to execute the plan. I don't like to make a lot of changes. When have you had to adjust expectations? What was that like? How did it go? We read here that Jesus takes compassion on the crowd. He cures their sick. He sees their need. And then the story goes on to describe uh, perhaps Jesus' most well-known miracle in all of the Gospels. It's, it's the only miracle. It's the only miracle that is told in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all tell this story of Jesus providing for the 5,000. Here in this story, we are confronted with the reality that God cares about the physical needs of God's people. Both in the way that Jesus has compassion on the crowds in the midst of his own grief and in Jesus' concern for the physical needs of the crowd as the day closes. You know, I think so often we, we think of spiritual matters as divorced from, or, from or, or separate and apart from physical matters. But what we find in Scripture, what we heard in the passage that Dr. Mastin read for us just moments ago, what we find throughout Scripture is the reality that God cares. God cares about your physical needs. God cares about your physical bodies. God cares about how we care for our physical bodies and others. Wendell Berry is a a poet and author and a farmer in Kentucky. 
And he writes this in his 1977 book, The Unsettling of America. He says, the Bible's aim, as I read it, is not the freeing of the spirit from the world. It is the handbook of their interaction. It says that that they cannot be divided, that their mutuality, their unity, it's inescapable. That they are not reconciled in division, but rather in harmony. You know, as people of faith, I I think we sometimes feel it's our call to be separate or, or above the material world. But as people of faith, the physical world matters because it matters to God. And and so what does this mean for us as Christians? What does this mean for you? What does this mean for me? What does it mean for us together as the church, as, as we are confronted with the massive needs of the world? What does it mean when we're confronted simply with the massive needs of the community where God has placed us? I think, I think one of our reactions, I think one of our reactions is to throw up our hands in helplessness. It's a, it's a coping mechanism. It's a coping mechanism. We say, we couldn't possibly, what am I to do? How could we even begin to address these needs? And, and it allows us to go about our day. And if this is your reaction, as it has been my reaction, you're in good company, not, not with me, with the disciples. Notice the disciples in reaction to the hunger of the crowds. It is, it is not their instinct to feed them. They don't even begin there. What do they say? Jesus, you've got to stop what you're doing so these people can go and take care of themselves. And Jesus says, they don't need to go anywhere. You, feed them. And that's a non-starter for them. They say, in fact, what what many of us would would likely say, they take stock of what they have in front of them. They say, well, we've got the fish and we've got the loaves. Well, we have nothing but the fish and the loaves. Feed them. And I think that when we are confronted with the needs of the world and the reality that God calls us to do something about it, we do the exact same thing. We, we say, we, we have nothing but fill in the blank. We're overwhelmed by our own insufficiency. And a large part of that, I believe, is is that our past experience of what we are capable of doing with the resources we have informs us that we cannot expect to make a difference. We do this as individuals and we do this as the church. You know, whether you consider this church to to be a place of means or to, to be a place of dwindling means in the face of growing secularity, or anywhere in between. When compared to the need in our community, it might as well be 
five loaves and two fish. On paper, we don't have enough. But the wondrous thing that our story demonstrates in the gospel message is that alone we are not called to be enough. The God of our physical world who offers the free and abundant grace of Jesus Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit, the same power that made five plus two enough is the one who makes us enough. And we say, we have nothing but, or I have nothing but, or I am nothing but. Last week, we talked some about calling, about this, this idea that, that God has, has called us each to a specific purpose, that God has given you gifts and talents and abilities for a purpose here in the world where God has placed you. And, and my guess is that you are are either living into that in some way, shape, or form that you have connected in with what God has created you to do or, or you have some sense of what it is that there is something more that God has for you but that you have dismissed it along the way with some of that language. Well, I have nothing but I am nothing but whatever comes next, whatever comes after the but, friends, hear me say this morning that Jesus can make it enough. The obstacle is that our past experience, our our past outcomes determines our future expectations for what is possible. We're trained to look at the physical constraints and limitations And we use them as the parameters in our decision-making rather than God's purpose for us. Like I did last week, let me say it. That doesn't mean you just go and do anything. That's not it. The challenge is in discovering what it is that God has called you to specifically. But so often we start with, what do we have and, and what can I do? We start with the wrong questions. Rather than asking, what is God up to and where does God want me? Friends, if we will step into the, the reality that God is sufficient, not only will we begin to see what, what God can do, but that activity in and of itself will proclaim the gospel to the world around us. You see, when we step into God's purposes for us and rely on what God can do with us, then when we get there, rather than saying, look at me, look at what I have done, look at how smart I am, look at how good we are, our actions demonstrate, look at God. 
But to do this together, we need to be a people who are immersed in Scripture. To ask the question, where does God want me, is a challenging question to answer. We need to do this in community together, diving into Scripture together. So Rally Day is just a couple of weeks away on September 10th, and we'll be launching a whole series of new opportunities for this congregation to be digging into Scripture. There are men's and women's Bible studies throughout the week. There are studies on Wednesday nights and on Sunday mornings. And we'll be launching a new small group initiative that's intended to create opportunities for you when you are available. These groups will meet throughout the week when you can meet. Groups of four to eight people discovering God's purposes for them together out in the community, in houses and coffee shops, here on church or online, when you can meet, where you can meet. Friends, how are we going to align our future expectations, not with our past experiences, but with God's reality? Because like the coin, our future is not determined by past outcomes, but rather by God's reality for us. If we will adjust our expectation when it comes to how God moves, then we can experience the life that God has for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.